The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and to the north. Round and round it goes Where it stops, nobody knows. Ever returning on its course, all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. What's up? (laughs) All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear, it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What's crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be Meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem, (laughs) a harem as well, as you do. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was, what? Meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize 
that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that guy will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun this too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Everybody feel good now? Yeah. Man, oh, man. Ecclesiastes. Anybody, like, I couldn't see when Dan asked, anybody ever read this thing in its entirety? Woo! That's a cheering up uh, if you've ever encountered one. Um, uh, this book is uh, really exciting to me, but I also want to tell you, man, it is, it is a challenge. You know, it says things that literally you're not going to find anywhere else in the Bible. I hated my life, you know, the text says. It's not really common in the Bible. Uh, and we're going to spend quite a few weeks in this text together. And I want to tell you from the outset, um, I have never at this point encountered a more challenging book to study. You know, normally when you're, when you're dealing with a, with a biblical text, you find a lot of consensus pretty fast. You know, I get into scholars and I read different commentaries and most of the scholars, like you'll get five or six that kind of line up. Man, as I've gotten into this thing, you've got guys who are disagreeing vehemently it means this, it means that. 180 degrees out of whack. And uh, the book itself internally is full of con contradictions. Like the teacher says one thing in one chapter, in a chapter later he'll say seemingly the exact opposite thing. And you're like, what is going on in this text, right? Um, and like I said, it is going to push us into territory that maybe we're not used to dealing with, especially if you've grown up around church for a while. And that's one of the reasons I love it. 
because I think there's a tendency to paint ourselves into corners with the Bible. Oh, the Bible is very easy to understand. And then every once in a while you come across a text like this that you're like, what? Like, if I could summarize the first couple chapters, and, and the writer even says it, look, Ecclesiastes, basically the life message you could say is this, life is full of trouble and then you die. And so, like, I, I always like to think of things like that uh, because uh, I have, in a way, always been a person that, that uh, overly simplistic explanations of life or even the Bible trouble me, you know? And so people come up and they say, well, you know, I love the Bible because it's, you know, this and it's very tight and it's very organized and everything. I'm like, oh, really? Because when I read it, I read things like this. But that's a blessing to me and a refreshment because it tells me that not just our Bible, but God acknowledges that sometimes life is complicated and complex and hard and full of trouble. And maybe you know somebody that is experiencing that this morning. And, and the, the little simple answer of life that, that maybe we tend to offer people, that's not going to work for them. Anybody know somebody like that? That you can just say, well, Jesus loves you. And they're just, they're not ready for that yet. There's something that they need an acknowledgement of, you know what, I can't hear that just yet. Can, can you talk to me about where I'm at? Well, man, that's why I like, love Ecclesiastes. Because he goes to dark places, you know? And the teacher in the, the text, that's what he calls himself, uh, he is going to ramble and go and circle around things. He does not go straight at a topic. He kind of brushes up against something, deals with it, and then goes somewhere else. It's rambling. And sometimes almost incoherent, you know? But here's the question that I ask myself whenever I come across something in the Bible, right? Well, if it's in the canon, that's what we call sort of the settled text that we have. If it's in the canon, if it's in this book, then what does it have to teach me? Because I don't have the right to just kind of pull out the pages and go, well, all right, I just won't pay attention to that one, right? So what does it have to teach us? And what I want to do is, is by way of introdu introduction to this book and to some of the key topics of it, I want to dwell on three phrases that show up in these first two chapters. And the first Phrase is the way the book starts. Havel. Let me hear you say Havel. Havel is a Hebrew word. It's translated in this text meaningless. Meaningless. You may have heard it uh, translated vanity. Vanity of vanities. Anybody ever heard that translation? That's like, I believe that might be the King James. I think Shakespeare uses it. Vanity of vanities. The word in Hebrew, Havel, literally means vapor. Vapor. So, meaningless is a way to understand that term. But vapor is the literal Hebrew. And vapor is not necessarily meaningless, but it is ephemeral. It does evaporate. It does drift away really easily, right? So, starting with that, 
I want to just talk about what we see in this text and, and what vapor is to us now. So, vapor is essentially anything that will go away someday, someday sooner. So, let's put it like this. Um, your job, vapor. Your house, vapor. Your boat, vapor. Your new computer, vapor. Your lawnmower, vapor. But there's more than that. Because vapor extends a level beyond that. Because I would actually say this. Your understanding, your knowledge that you've acquired, it's vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Your ambition, vapor. Your drive to succeed, vapor. It will go away. Everything is vapor, according to the teacher. Even your things that you treasure most in the world, our, our bodies do not stay the same as we get older, amen? Things change, gravity takes hold, it's vapor. The people you love are vapor. They will not, in this life, last forever. And some of us have been blessed with uh, marriages that have, have, have lasted a long time. One day, one of you will stand over the grave of the other. Things pass away. And the teacher is saying, everything is vapor. Now, not necessarily meaningless, but holding on to it, grasping at it, controlling it is a challenge, is it not? Anybody ever tried to hold vapor? It's not easy. Second thing. There's a phrase that appears uh, oftentimes in this text called under the sun. Anybody catch that in the, in the reading? Under the sun. I've looked and I've seen that there's nothing new under the sun. Well, this is a Hebrew euphemism that is simply meant to describe everything that is created, everything that exists between birth and death happens under the sun. Another way to understand it is in time. Anything that you bring into time is under the sun, according to the writer. Now, there are things that don't exist under the sun. We will get to those in a moment. But... The realm of time and the realm of the created under the sun. Let's just talk about that for a moment. So, anything that you build is under the sun. Anything that you scheme, anything that you arrange, anything that you have drive for exists in time and is under the sun. The way you arrange your life is under 
the Son. It is in time. Now, why is this important? Well, um, Ecclesiastes is something in the Bible called wisdom literature. There's, there's a, a few books in the Bible that are, that are genre-wise considered wisdom literature. Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And parts of the Psalms will be considered wisdom literature. Now, wisdom literature is essentially, con- uh, essentially concerned with this. How do you live? How is one supposed to live in this life? Now, what's interesting about wisdom literature, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. What's interesting about the, the essential wisdom literature of the Bible, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, they are drastically different, every single one of them. Job is the story of a guy who loses everything and, and has to suffer. And, and it's a story of, of how do you question God when everything goes south. Proverbs is full of wisdom. Beautiful sayings just about smart ways to live your life. Ecclesiastes has some of that. But like I said, it is going to go beyond what you understand and what we understand as wisdom literature. And what you find, especially in the book of Proverbs, is essentially two paths. If you ever read Proverbs, it'll say something like, look, if you do this, this is going to happen. Do that, that's going to happen. So the wise person will behave this way. The fool will behave that way, and there'll be consequences, right? And so life for Proverbs and a lot of wisdom literature is just divided in two. Hey, do this, and things are going to go well. Do that, things are going to go not so well. Anybody ever encountered life like this? The beauty of Ecclesiastes is it acknowledges that there's another existence somehow, sometimes, to our life. And let me say it this way. How many of you in this room have ever done what you could say, I did everything right, and it still blew up in my face? Anybody ever said, I made all the mistakes you can make and somehow ended up okay? Then Ecclesiastes might be speaking your language. You see, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is to say, look, sometimes um, you can build a great life. You can accumulate all of this vapor, and then I got to leave it to the guy who's coming after me. Is that fair that I have to just kind of surrender all my guitars, all of my, you know, just whatever it is in your life? The teacher is saying, look, I'm going to name it. I'm going to go there. That doesn't feel right to me. I did all the right things. I don't know if this Yahoo that that plays Xbox all day is going to be worthy of the things that I've built. Anybody ever had that thought? I have a teenage son, so it's kind of pressing on me right now. Is life that black and white? And Ecclesiastes starts pushing on this, you know? And, and, and the reason I like to think that Ecclesiastes is provocative and useful for us is that he says things that some of us may have, have thought in our brain, but we're good church people, so we don't like to say things like that out, out loud. Ecclesiastes is like, I'll go there. The teacher's like, I'll say it. And sometimes, I don't know, maybe you agree with me or disagree with me, sometimes 
I need to have something a little bit shocking said to me to wake me up to a new reality. I don't know if you're like this at all, but there can be a tendency to come into a room like this and to just assume that I'm going to hear the same things I've always heard about God and Jesus and life. And sometimes we come into a space like this, we need to be woken up to something that we haven't maybe ever considered before. So thank, thank you to the Bible and to God for giving us this text. So that's the first two. So the first one is Havel, vapor. Second one, under the sun. Third one is this phrase that occurs in chapter two. When I surveyed. And so the teacher sits down in, in verse four and he's like, look, let me tell you what I have done. I've built it all. I had it all. I accumulated all the wealth that could be accumulated. I made the first million, then the second million, then the third million. I had everything in my house arranged perfectly. I had a closet full of shoes. I had all the outfits that I needed to have. I had everything. And he says, yet, verse 11, when I surveyed all that my hands had done. It was all meaningless. As I heard somebody say, this is what happens the morning after you get your dreams. Anybody ever gotten everything you ever wanted and then woke up the morning after and you're like, whoa, yesterday I had everything I ever wanted and why do I feel so lousy today? The teacher is willing to name that moment of what happens if you get everything. What happens if, if you dreamed it up and it's fallen into your lap? And yet he says, when I think about it, it was all meaningless. I've, I've sat and talked with people in this community who would say, yeah, man, I got that. I made I made this much money, then I made this much money, then I made this much money, and I got vacations and vacations and vacations, and yet there's something missing because it didn't satisfy me. The morning after I got it all, or the season after I got it all, I look back and I was like, it was all meaningless because it's all falling away or it's all just spinning out of control and and I'm trying to grasp the vapor and I'm trying to hold on to it but vapor it just won't stay in my hand will it so where is all this taking us right um, it's taking us to the place that is not vapor because there is a place that is not vapor and it is not under the sun. And he hints at it in verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction. That's vapor. Don't get hung up on that. 
This too, I see, is from the hand of God. So, God, in the text, Elohim, God, is not under the sun. God is not created. He exists before. He exists after. He does not dwell under the sun. He enters the realm of time, but he is not bound by it, and he is not vapor. And this is where the beauty of the teacher starts to really unfold. You see, I want to suggest to you that if you get, if you get the priorities right, then everything sort of falls into place. And most of us dwell in something called vapor management. And I meet with you, and Dan meets with you, and Lori meets with you, and your growth group leaders meet with you, and you come to us and you say, look, I got a problem with my job. I have a problem with school. I have a problem with this relationship. And you're essentially asking us, can you tell me how to fix my vapor? Because if you fix my vapor, then life will just be peachy. But guess what? It's still vapor. You can get it all right, and it's still going to pass away. You can't grasp it. You can't hold it. But if you can learn to acknowledge that everything might pass away, but there is someone and something eternal, it starts to put it all into place. Now, unfortunately, we tend to realize these moments at extremes. So for me, there are moments when I no longer think about vapor. I no longer think about my bank account. I no longer think about my agendas in life. I no longer think about what I'm trying to accomplish and what I'm trying to do. But unfortunately, a lot of those moments happen either in moments of extreme uh, fear and sadness and mourning or moments of extreme joy and elation. For some reason, as a human being, when I'm dwelling in the middle, um, I don't naturally seek the eternal. But there have been times in my life, and maybe in your life, maybe something catastrophic has happened to you. And at those moments, all the vapor in your life evaporates, and you are preoccupied with where I'm at in this moment. Anybody ever been there? I remember when we were, uh, we were uh, literally uh, in the hospital and Shana was trying to deliver our first child, Emily, and there was a moment, uh, about a, I don't know, a 10-minute window where the heartbeat was lost, right? And we're like, we don't have her heartbeat. And then, you know, the nurses just jump in to, to action. And, and as the dad, I'm kind of like, what's, what's happening? What, 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 you know, and they're like pushing me out of the way. They're like, Mr. Case, just stand there. 
In those moments, I no longer am thinking about the vapor in my life. I'm only thinking about, you know, what happens now? And then, you know, obviously they, they were able to, to find the heartbeat. It was, it was actually a pretty tiny circumstance. But even after that, right? Even after that, I'm just so grateful, right? And you're just like, none of the vapor matters. What matters is I'm here with my wife. And we're about to have a baby. That is not under the sun. That is touching the eternal. But sometimes we have to be willing to enter into the extremes of life if we don't naturally seek it in order to wake up to that. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? So this is the way I would say it. I would say essentially that if and when we're willing to let the scales fall from our eyes, and when we're really willing to truly embrace life as a gift from God and to ignore the vapor, then we experience the joy, the peace and contentment that our souls are ultimately hungry for. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 6. He said, look, seek first the kingdom of God. And then the vapor will take care of itself. Because when you dwell in the kingdom with God, in intimacy with his spirit, all of a sudden you're like, yeah, you know, I know. Life is going to go like this. The vapor is going to drift in my hands, out of my hands, through my life. But you know what? There's something that cannot be touched. And it is life with God. He is with me. And so as things go up and down, what begins to build inside of me is an untouchable thing that is not vapor. And it is not under the sun. It is eternity in my heart. And when I can say that, I can say whether, I'm, whether life is way up here, whether the vapor is right here, or the vapor is down here, I can say, thank you, God, because my life is a gift. Thank you, God, that my life is not a vapor. Thank you, God, that you are here regardless. That is the gift of Ecclesiastes, and that is sort of where we are going to explore. So, I think there's um, a couple realities, if I could just kind of wrap this thing up. And again, I'm, I'm sort of, I re I'm aware that I'm almost contradicting myself because I started this by saying, look, I don't like overly simplistic answers, but I'm going to give you an overly simplistic answer. At its core, a lot of times we have to acknowledge the fact that we either dwell in this reality of life is about me searching for the next thing that I will find, or my life is a gift right now and I am enough right now I met people on both sides of that 
And on this side of it, we're always preoccupied with the vapor. And another way to, to, to label the vapor is just to say, look, if I could just get this thing, then I would be. If I could just fill in the blank, then I would be. Anybody know anybody like this? If I could just graduate. If I could just get this relationship. If I could just get this job. If I could just get this house. If I could just change this thing about my life, then I would be okay. Then I would be content. Then I would have peace. Then I would be freed up, you know, to do whatever. That is a lie of the vapor. It is a lie of the vapor because when you get that thing and then you think you are that thing, guess what's going to happen? Vapor drifts away. And then you either have to go searching over the next thing and the next thing and the next thing after that, or you choose to live in the reality that says, right now, I have been blessed with eternity in my heart. And right now, God is enough. And that's the reality that we are invited into. At its base level, essentially, is we already have the best gift that we could get. And that is that we're all breathing right now. Because I believe that life, even life, even this life, even this humid, hot, northern Florida life is a gift to me. And I either accept it or I go, if I could, then I would just. That's the invitation. That, that is a gift of this Bible in this Ecclesiastes series. I'm going to invite you guys to pray with me.